from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn about the impact budget deficits are having on the Wauwatosa School District. Then we'll tell you about a job listing that went viral over the summer that lets you eat cheese for a living. Cheese just has a kind of sort of comforting presence and the thought of being paid to taste cheese all day. Uh, there was definitely some people very passionate and enthusiastic. Plus, we'll learn about the craft of cheesemaking from one of Wisconsin's female master cheesemakers. Probably the right term would be craft because there's, there's a lot of skill, there is science, but there's also a lot of science that we haven't yet discovered. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Right now, many Wisconsin school districts are facing budget deficits. That's because state funding hasn't kept up with inflation for the past dozen or so years, giving school districts less spending power over time. Combine that with declining student enrollment, and it puts public schools under a lot of financial strain. One example is the Wauwatosa School District, which told parents last month it was considering closing one or two elementary schools due to a $9 million deficit. WUWM education reporter Emily Files speaks to Wauwatosa Superintendent Demond Means about the financial pressure districts like his are under. How did the state budget impact the Tosa School District this year? I think it's important for us to pause and not focus on the most recent 2023-2025 state budget. We have to step back and look at the fact that the state legislature, for over 10 years now, has not provided adequate revenue to public schools that, keep, that will keep up with inflationary costs. So we continue to compound the problem uh, and we have been compounding the problem for over a 10-year uh, span, over a 10-year span. That's the problem. So I, I think we, we shouldn't be uh, captive to the most recent situation that's happened out of Madison. It's been over a decade in which the legislature has clearly made a decision that they're not going to provide adequate uh, funding to public education. That's the problem. They're squeezing the local uh, school systems to a point where we are the ones who are forced to make the tough decisions and they're refusing to make the decisions at the state level. So I hear what you're saying about this is a compounding effect from years of underfunding, but um, let's talk about the, the current budget. Sure. There was a $325 per pupil increase um, and more special education funding. Um, so how did those affect your school district? So this most recent state budget is probably the most egregious of all of the state budgets because the state legislature has a historic fund balance that they currently uh, are sitting on. There was ample funds to provide more revenue to public schools. They refused to do so. 
the slight increase that they've provided to special education funding is nowhere near how much we should uh, provide funding for our students with special needs. The $325 increase on um, for the two years is nowhere near how much the, the state legislature could have funded public schools. This was a massive um, failure on the legislature's part to fund public schools. They had the funds. They have the funds currently still. It's important to note that the way that our state funding works is that they've placed revenue caps um, and limits, I should say, on local school systems, on how much we can generate revenue. So our ability to generate more revenue is only through the, the process of going to the public for a referendum. So what are the options that the district is considering to deal with this financial situation? What we've decided to do is to uh, invite a group of community members to be part of a task force. What we have done is we've identified three major areas that we know we have to examine. The first is our enrollment strategy. Wauwatosa is one of the largest, if not the largest, um, I believe we're the largest, in fact, uh, participant in the open enrollment program. Um, and so that allows us to take in students from other municipalities and other communities to go to school here in Wauwatosa. The challenge with that is we receive $8,700 per open enrollment student, um, but according to our, our chief financial officer, it costs us $12,000 to educate a child. So you can see the gap um, in, in that financial equation. So that's the first area that we're asking our task force to look at. The second is our long-range facility plan. It costs money to keep our environments uh, modern and to ensure that every child has a modern learning environment. So we want to have that conversation. But it's premature to, to make the, the statement that the district is forming um, directions at this time. I, I think we want to hear from the community, and that's why we, we structured the task force model um, to make sure that um, the voice of the community is heard. Um, and, and so that's the process that we're going to utilize. Um, we think it's important that we take our time. Um, I think we're in a better position than most school systems in that we have a very healthy fund balance. And so we're planning to utilize our fund balance to um, bridge us over this ne next biannual budget. Uh, but we understand that this is not a long-term solution um, to our financial problems. So that's why we're starting to have this conversation now. So one of the long-term solutions that the task force is considering is closing one or two elementary schools, Jefferson and Washington. So can you talk about why that is on the table? And how much does declining enrollment have to do with that decision? What I would say is that the scenarios that were offered are so preliminary in nature um, and that they are conceptual and hypothetical in nature while they name an actual school and they were named based on the condition of the buildings or uh, our ability to minimize impact of other students. I think it's premature for us to talk about what these actually mean because in the process itself, as I just shared with you, they're ideas, they're scenarios their concepts. This is nothing definitive, nothing definitive at all. So I, I, would, I would feel that it, it would be premature and inappropriate for me to really unpack the, the discussion of closing any school in our, our district. I want to go on record. 
I don't want to close any school in Wauwatosa. I don't want that to happen. But what it means is that our community will have to really come together and, and to recognize that it is important that we understand our financial situation um, and that if we want to avoid the conversation becoming more definitive around closing of any school, then we're going to have to rally together to say, what's our, our tolerance level in, in uh, injecting more revenue to ensure that our, our schools, all of our schools remain open? Can you talk a little bit, though, about declining enrollment and whether the district's footprint right now doesn't match its enrollment? Actually, we had a projected enrollment study done this uh, past summer, and uh, we're projecting to have a stable to slight increase in our enrollment over the next 10 years. That's a good thing. Um, so I, I'm really happy that Wauwatosa continues to be a destination district for families who want to educate their children um, and that... Um, where we don't anticipate having declining enrollment. So that's not part of our footprint conversation. I think more um, the bigger conversation is how many of our, our students do we want to, to be resident students in our school system? And then what kind of what size schools do we want to have for our children? Um, it's okay to have smaller neighborhood schools. I think that makes Wauwatosa special and unique. Um, and I hope that we can hold on to that, that characteristic and quality of our, our school system. It's important that all parents come together to say that we like our local schools and we need the legislature to fund these schools so we can keep our local uh, schools, either in this community or in other communities, we want to keep them open. What reaction have you gotten from the community since sending out that announcement that closing schools is one of the options that's being considered by this task force? I think community members are recognizing that it's time to become more alert in terms of the impact that decisions at um, the legislative level is having on our local situation. Um, I think that the community has rallied together to say that we, we want to maintain our schools and what do we need to do together to keep those schools open. Um, people have shared that they don't want to see their school closed. Um, and what we've been able to share is that we don't want to see them close either. So now it's a matter of how do we work together to make sure that the, the, the power brokers and the decision makers who really have control over the revenue at the state level hear our voice collectively. Um, and if they continue to uh, rebuff us and, and to ignore us, what do we need to do locally to make sure that there is a mechanism through uh, a, a referendum of some sort to maintain our schools remaining open? I don't, we're not focused on the negative. We're not focused on what, what it would look like if we close a school. I, I am presuming that we're not going to close any schools. I'm presuming that we're going to have to work hard to find ways to generate revenue in other um, ways. And I think this conversation that's happening in Wauwatosa is happening across the entire state because of where we started this conversation with the compounding effect of the legislature not providing revenue that keeps up with inflationary costs. Is there, do you think that there is an appetite for another referendum in Wauwatosa so that the district doesn't have to close schools or stop open enrollment or some of these other scenarios? I'm optimistic that this community believes in neighborhood schools. I'm optimistic uh, and believe that this community believes in 
welcoming students from all communities and that we are proud of our participation in open enrollment um, because of the diversity that it, that it brings. And I believe that this community ultimately will say that we believe in these things so much that we're, we're willing to pay for it and we're willing to go to the, to the ballot box in November of 2024 and we're willing to pay for it. And that would require refer a referendum to support all those things? I think it's going to require a referendum. I think it's going to also require us making some hard budget cuts because I think we also administratively, the, the part that we do have to, to um, do is demonstrate to the community, community that we're willing to make reductions in our expenditures. But what I've shared with the community that, uh, what I've shared with the community is that we can't cut our way to excellence. We can't cut $9 million of expenditures and assume that we're going to continue to be an excellent school system. DeMond Means is the superintendent of the Wauwatosa School District. He spoke with WUWM education reporter Emily Files. You can find more of Emily's reporting on school funding at wuwm.com. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about the craft of cheesemaking from one of only two women master cheesemakers who's right in Plymouth, Wisconsin. But first, did you know that eating cheese is a job? We'll tell you all about it coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. We make and eat a lot of cheese here in Wisconsin, but apparently you can get paid to do that. Over the summer, UW Madison publicized it was hiring a new crew of cheese tasters for UW Madison's Center for Dairy Research. And well, for obvious reasons, it went viral. It was talked about on CNN, NBC's The Today Show, and Business Insider. But WUWM's Mayan Silver wanted to uncover what it really takes to be a cheese taster and how the work is used. Here she is speaking with Brandon Prohaska, the sensory coordinator with the Center for Dairy Research. So the job listing back in June said, the Center for Dairy Research is looking for individuals passionate about all types of food, but especially cheese, pizza, and other dairy products. Once hired, we will train you to become part of a group of expert tasters. These tasters are capable of, quote, verbally describing their sensory experience on the basis of appearance, texture, taste, and aroma. Okay, so Brandon, 
Millions of people love pizza. What stands out from the crowd in applying to a job like this? What do you look for as the raw material, so to speak? <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of people reading about the job posting and, and talking about it on social media, you know, they're just kind of thinking, oh, we're tasting pizza. Do we say what we like, what we don't like? Um, but we're, we're almost thinking about this type of position as being like an analytical instrument where we're evaluating multiple samples throughout the day. Uh, we want results that are repeatable and then also results that match up from person to person. So we each kind of have our own unique experience when we're, when we're tasting, say, a piece of pizza, for example. Um, but we all want to be kind of on the same page and the same wavelength as the other members of the panel um, and be kind of approaching it in a very methodical and systematic way. Um, so that's, that's part of the challenge is, you know, we're looking for someone um, who kind of has that discipline and that, um, you know, passion for evaluating products uh, in that way. So you don't want like five people saying, oh, this Swiss cheese tastes nutty and another person saying, oh, it tastes fruity or something mm -hmm. like that. Well, it, I mean, that does happen even after people are trained. Uh, there, There's kind of a um, phenomenon in which we all are a little bit unique in, in our genetics and our taste buds and things like that. So there are times when even highly trained people have some disagreements about each other. Um, but the kind of thing that we're avoiding would be, for example, if you were raised outside of our panel, as everyone is, and you know, you might call something sour, and that might mean different things to different people. But when we're training people on the panel, for them, sour is specifically kind of the citrus or vinegary notes of an aroma. So some people, sour might be like spoiled milk or, or different things. So it's just like they're all using the same term, and that term means the same thing to everyone on the panel. I see. So what's the point of all of this in the first place? Yeah, fill me in on that. Yeah. So um, on one hand, you know, we kind of mentioned people are like instruments in this case where there's just certain things, you know, we can kind of approximate human smell and human taste with instruments, but it's a far cry from actually replicating that. Um, so on one hand, that's kind of what we need is we need the human element of, you know, with any sort of food product, people are always going to be the ones tasting it and experiencing it. So we have to have that kind of direct comparison. Secondly, kind of the whole purpose of it is it's in our name, the Center for Dairy Research. We're doing lots of research into various ways to kind of help and assist the dairy industry. So we're thinking of a lot of different practical applications, things like how do we extend the shelf life of a product? How do we make something have an even better flavor? Or maybe there's a, a new technology coming out um, that's not quite you know, replicating the flavor people expect. And we're thinking about, well, how can we take that and make it closer to what it is? You know, those are all different types of examples of what we might be doing uh, with the work of what we're, what we're tasting. Don't tell me you're trying to make AI cheese. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's very <laughs> practical things. Uh, I mean, I, I think a, an easy to understand example would be in the, in the cheese industry right now, it's more common or becoming more common to use something called concentrated milk where you take some of the water out to begin with um, to give a better cheese yield. But sometimes it doesn't, the cheese itself doesn't have the same characteristics as if it's made uh, the traditional way with the full amount of water already there. So in that case, we're saying, you know, we're, we're being able to make it more economically, but we still want it to perform and function the same way, even though it's, it's a slightly newer process. How do you work in conjunction with cheese processors and with pizza makers and things like that? Like, mm -hmm. what's the relationship there? Yeah. So it, it's anywhere from 
kind of semi-direct to completely direct, where um, at least in, in sensory, what we do is we can either, a, a client may come and ask, you know, hey, we're starting up a new plant or we're starting to make a new type of cheese. We need your descriptive panel to kind of analyze the flavor and the texture and the functional characteristics of this cheese to make sure that it either meets our customers' expectations or it's just like this other plant that we have and you know, give those results back directly. If in the case of research, it's kind of a semi-direct way where there's a, an overall project that we're, we're looking to do that um, would support the entire kind of dairy industry uh, from a wider per perspective. Um, so it could be, you know, the, like the example I gave earlier where we're extending the shelf life or we're working with concentrated milks. You know, that's something that can help the entire industry, multiple producers. So it's anywhere kind of from that semi-direct way all the way up to we're one-on-one -on -one with a client and they want specific things that our sensory panel can help them with. Is that one of the reasons that the UW Center for Dairy Research is doing these sensory panels and not the companies themselves because you can have a broader perspective for, for all for a lot of people in the industry? Yeah, there's there's a couple of reasons. So I like I like to describe it to people as um, the research keeps our panel busy every day. It's kind of like what pays the bills and keeps us working. In industry, these types of projects don't come up every day and for them to kind of have a trained panel. So to give a, an example, the, the panel, we're either tasting and, and evaluating products every week, or if there's a week where we have nothing scheduled, we're practicing to do that. So the, the level of, of training and repetition and practice is so rigorous that unless a company is dedicated to say, this person's gonna spend 10 hours a week doing this type of work, and in most cases I've seen in the industry, people are stretched pretty thin to begin with. And if they do sensory work internally, they're not able to dedicate that much time to keeping their people trained and practiced. So they typically will fall in either very large organizations or universities like us where we're doing it every day. But yeah, and because of that, you know, because we are doing so much practice and repetition and seeing so many different things, we can give really good results that they can feel confident in when they, when they see the report. So why do you think this job posting kind of blew up earlier this summer? <laughs> it's it's a great question, and I don't know if anyone of us will ever have the answer as to like what the secret sauce was that made it kind of go viral. But um, I mean, I think you know, cheese just has a kind of sort of comforting presence, and the thought of being paid to taste cheese all day. You know, there's a lot of different jokes made about it, you know, good or bad. Um, but uh, there was definitely some people very passionate and enthusiastic about like, look at all the pizzas I've eaten. Here's all my, you know, Domino's receipts or whatever, and you should you should hire me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just just something about it um, struck a chord with people. How many applications did you get in and how many people did you end up choosing? <laughs> so before, you know, the whole phenomenon went viral, we were setting out to hire about five people. And that didn't really change through the whole process, even though we got about 250 applicants. So part of it was we had a much larger pool to choose from. It, you know, we've hired for this position before. Um, and that's another thing um, as people were interviewing, I kind of made them aware of is, you know, as people leave the panel, whether they, they're students who are graduating or they move on for whatever reason, there will continue to be new spots opening up on the panel. So even if they didn't get in in this round where the competition was fierce, you know, every probably 
three to six months, we might hire another round of people because people are constantly moving on from the job and we train the next generation, so. <laughs> you mean you don't become a professional cheese taster for life? <laughs> well, so that's a, one thing is um, we hired for this job before, but it was only recently where we started hiring non-students to do the job. It was about a year ago we hired our first round of people. And from our first round of hires, there is still one person who's still doing it a year in, and there's several people who are approaching a year now, and we're hoping that they'll stay with us for a really long time. We, we try to make it you know, as fun and enjoyable and engaging as possible, and um, I'm sure five years from now, there'll be quite a few people who have been doing it for five years, so time will tell for sure. How many people do you have rotating through these panels at once? <clears throat> like, So we tend to like to have around 20 to 25 people um, whether they're fully trained or in the process of being trained at any given time. And part of what that is is, you know, as people are, you know, they're busy or they're traveling or it's a holiday, we still have enough people who can be there any given week um, to get around seven or eight people kind of minimum on the, the panel for good results. Um, because a lot of what we do is for published research, we want to make sure it is, you know, good solid science, um, repeatable uh, data, and a good amount of um data points so that we can feel confident in the results. And as I alluded to earlier, we're, we're pretty much running every week, even holidays, Thanksgiving, week of Christmas. We're still in there doing panels because there's a lot of graduate students doing their research and they, they pretty much stagger it where every week we've got something to do in the sensory panel. Does anyone ever tell you, man, I cannot eat another piece of cheese <laughs> like I'm... <laughs> Um, you know, we've not really had anyone get uh, too overwhelmed in that regard. Part of what we do with the process is we do go through a lot of cheese in a day, um, but most of what we do is we actually spit it out. Um, it helps us from getting overly full because when you get to that point, your taste buds kind of shut down. You don't really give good results. You kind of mentally get a little bit drained because um, even, you know, an hour and a half into our three-hour session, we do normally take a break because people probably think, oh, you're just eating cheese, what do you need a break for, or whatever. But it is, um, I always give the example on pizzas, there's about 20 different attributes that we're evaluating, and we're, we're on a pretty tight timeline where as one pizza's cooling down, another one's coming out of the oven, and we started evaluating that one, we're doing kind of two side by side. Um, so it's a, maybe a little more rigorous than people people expect. But once people are trained and we get in the hang of it, we, we get on a rhythm and, and we, we can do about six pizzas start to finish in an hour. And you got to... You got to lay out what those characteristics are, because when I eat a pizza, I'm like, OK, like good crust, good sauce, good cheese. But I'm yeah. not like, you know, <laughs> getting into the nitty gritty of the cheese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, I kind of think of it. We we evaluate different attributes as the pizza cools down. So I've kind of got my mental list of what happens now. We do it on just kind of a plain crust with sauce, but everything about it that we're evaluating is the cheese specifically. So there's no really attributes about the crust or anything like that or the sauce. Um, but we do things like um, the blister quantity, the little brown spots on the top of a cheese pizza, like how many are there? What size are they? What color are they? Then we look at um, if any cheese has flowed off the crust, we look at how well the cheese has melted, if it's melted completely, if there's some that's unmelted. Uh, we look at if there's free oil release. We look at if how much of a skin has kind of formed on the top of a pizza. We look then at the stretch, like how much does it stretch? How wide are the strands when you stretch it? 
Um, and then finally, when it cools down enough, then we're doing flavor and texture attributes like um, the first chew hardness, the cohesiveness of the cheese, um, how chewy is the cheese, how much effort does it take, and then we get into flavor like Damn. salt and acid and buttery <laughs> and milky and all these different attributes that we look at. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's a long list. Do, do people who go through this feel like they can't just sit and watch a Packer game and eat a slice of pizza anymore <laughs> because they're going to be like overthinking every aspect of it? You know, some people, I think they, they have kind of an analytical mindset to begin with. So when people join the panel, they're like, I've, I've kind of already done this before. And now I kind of have an excuse to be analytical when I'm tasting pizza and stuff. So um, I think kind of the opposite. Sometimes people get more of an appreciation for like what is truly a good cheese pizza. So they might find a brand or they might learn how to make their own. Because um, some people think pizza has to be mozzarella. And we learn about things like blending in some Munster, blending in some provolone, and getting these more complex flavors and textures going on. So and they, they might, at the end of the day, think of even better ways to make their pizzas at home and, and find good ways to enjoy them. The other thing that people will find is after you're tasting, you know, 20 different cheeses in a day, you find the one that you really like, and then you can go back at the end and have, you know, a full piece of that and, and enjoy it. So you're not wasting your your stomach or your calories on anything that you don't really like as much. You find your favorite one. <laughs> All right. Uh, Brendan Prohaska of UW Center for Dairy Research. Thanks for joining me on Lake Effect. It's my pleasure. Brandon Prohaska is the sensory coordinator at UW-Madison's Center for Dairy Research. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. If Wisconsin were a country, we would rank fourth in the world in cheese production, behind the rest of the U.S., Germany, and France. Wisconsin also has the only cheesemaker program outside of Europe. And of the master cheesemakers, there are only two women. Pam Hodgson of Sartori Cheese in Plymouth, Wisconsin, is one of them. Hodgson's family have been farmers in the area since the 1840s. And the legacy of cheesemaking goes back to her grandfather. Hodgson speaks with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski about how a job at a local cheese plant led her down the path to becoming a master cheesemaker. My pathway to cheesemaking it does have a couple of twists and turns. Growing up, I wanted to be a dairy farmer like my parents. Uh, it did turn out that my maternal grandfather was a very accomplished cheesemaker, but when I was growing up, I knew him as grandpa. He was already retired. So my, my journey to become a dairy farmer took me to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I studied cows. Great experience. And early on in my husband and I, uh, our farming career, we were just starting out. We needed a little bit more money to fuel the dream. So there was an opening at a cheese plant in the area for a quality assurance supervisor. And I took the job, and uh, once I was in the plant, I just fell in love with cheese making. Uh, I think it, it's a little bit of a joke on our family in that I had no intention of becoming a cheese maker, but like my maternal grandfather, it turned out to be a fantastic career for me. What were some of the things that you were immediately drawn to when you took that first job? I loved working in the cheese plant when I started in 1991 because, one, there's always something going on. We ran milk around the clock, and when we weren't making cheese, we were cleaning the equipment that we used. So there was always something going on. I liked the satisfaction 
of at the end of the day, we had a cooler full of cheese that we had made. We could see the, the results of our hard work. And then cheese making is challenging. Um, it's physically challenging. It, it, it can be very hard work depending on what job you're doing. It challenges a person intellectually. We always have to, as cheesemakers, we have to listen to the process and make adjustments to the process based on what the milk is doing or what the curd is doing. It's not the same every day because our major component milk changes a little bit every day seasonally depending on stage lactation, environment, what cows are being fed. So there's always something to challenge a person. And then all of my cheesemaking experiences have been in, in plants where it was a team working together. And I really thrive and enjoy that. I enjoy working with people and seeing people develop and become more accomplished cheesemakers or more accomplished in whatever it is they want to do. And the practice of cheesemaking itself, it's referred to as an art typically, but for you it's both an art and a science and not one or the other, right? Correct. I think probably the right term would be craft because there's, there's a lot of skill, there is science, but there's also a lot of science that we haven't yet discovered. As an accomplished cheesemaker, we'll always pay close attention to the process and make adjustments as needed. And then kind of related to that, as I think about cheesemaking, how my maternal grandfather knew it compared to how I, I know it, over the years we've been able to harness technology to help us be more consistent. But that technology doesn't replace the eye of, of the cheesemaker. It doesn't replace paying attention to the process and making adjustments. What automation or technology does for us is it helps us be more consistent. But in itself, it doesn't make us better. It takes the cheesemaker to, to make the cheese good or to make good cheese. And kind of related to that as well is technology on the farm. Um, in the, I don't know, 30-some years that I've been making cheese, I'm just impressed on how much the quality of milk has improved during that time frame. And it's because we have hardworking family farms who are, who are really dedicated to producing high-quality milk. And they, too, are harnessing technology to help their operations become better, to make their milk be better. Exactly. And on the note of how things have shifted and changed and improved, there's obviously so many elements that go into making cheese. So we're going to focus on one of the beginning stages, which is starter bacteria. So can you explain what that is and the importance of it? Yes. So as cheesemakers in general, uh, there's a lot of different ways to make cheese. But um, when we think about cheddar or Parmesan, lots of cheeses, we are using starter bacteria, which ferment the lactose in the milk, which brings the pH down, uh, which if we think about the ancient art of cheese making, that was really important from a, a food preservation standpoint. Um, so we're, we're managing a biological process as cheesemakers. We also will add starters. The purpose isn't to convert lactose into lactic acid. They work down the line as the cheese is aging and they'll create some of the flavors that we, we absolutely love in cheese because they're breaking down the proteins. It's a very interconnected process to partner with bacteria to make great cheese. I love the way you phrase that, partner with bacteria. Yes, and of course we want certain bacteria. We want the ones that create the flavors we want. Uh, there's plenty of bacteria out there that are safe to consume, but they don't make the flavors we want. And then 
then there's the the culprits out there that from a food safety standpoint we absolutely build our process around preventing their their inclusion in our milk right so with starter bacteria how has this element developed or changed over time compared to say when your grandfather was using starters yes so when my grandfather was making cheese he did a process which was called mothering the culture. So he would have some culture, he would grow it in small batches, and then he would grow that again. You could think of it a little bit like a process of sourdough bread, right? You're keeping back some of your starter to make the next batch of starter. And at that point, he would not have known what strains were in his starter, and he probably did not have just one strain in his starter as well. If we compare that to what we do now, is uh, now we're, we're using defined strains where we, we know what that bacteria is. We're monitoring it to make sure that it, its performance doesn't change over time. Growing up, I'd hear stories about how uh, somebody's starter had failed and they'd come to, to George Hintz to get his starter. Um, and, you know, cheesemakers would help each other out. And we'll also enter contests and we'll compete really hard. And we, you know, we all want to win that contest. But when the contest is over, we're also genuinely happy for whoever did win. So it's a really neat community to be part of the Wisconsin cheesemaking scene. One thing that I imagine, say, your grandfather had to deal with was a lack of automation, like things when it comes to heat control or other processes in the cheesemaking stages. Are those good basic building blocks that allow you to be more creative in the process down the road when you are developing cheese? Absolutely. Um, Growing up, I would hear stories of pretty much how much my grandfather hated his wood-fired boiler because he had inconsistent steam control. So he'd be fighting that instead of focusing on, on cheese making. Today, we have very good control of our temperatures and that's really important because as we work to create American originals, uh, cheeses that will make Wisconsin proud, we need to have the control so that if we invent this, this great cheese and it's just fantastic, well, we have to be able to replicate it because each time a consumer comes and, and buys this piece of Wisconsin cheese, they want it to be the same goodness as it was last time. So automation really allows us to do that, but automation does not replace the skill and observation of, of a, a cheesemaker. If anything, does it make the challenge of standing out even more satisfying? So when we think about cheesemaking, it, it's an ancient art. I mean, it goes back millennials, right? So, and around the world, there's just thousands of different kinds of cheeses. So if, if, we, if we look at that and we're like, wow, we want to create American original. And that's, that's a really big focus at Sartori. We, we want to create American originals. Um, we'll look to anyone around the world for inspiration, but we don't want to copy somebody else's great cheese. We want to make our own. And, and even something as common as a cheddar, we'll put our own signature on it. So if you just look at it from that standpoint, it, it is kind of kind of daunting to think about, well, we want to create something new that somebody else hasn't had. But what kind of grounds me on all that is the creativity process. What I find in being creative is I get very balanced on right brain and left brain activities. So part of me is like, okay, if I look at this process and how traditionally this process has been done, 
well, if I do what everybody else has done, I'm going to end up what everybody else already has. So how can I do it differently? And then the analytical part of me is looking at the data after we've made the cheese and, and made multiple vats of the cheese and understanding, well, if we make more acidity early in the process, what is the consequence later on in the finished product? Um, so, you know, as we talked earlier about falling in love with the process, I absolutely love this part, that freedom to be creative and then also the analytical opportunities that it provides for me. So, yeah, it's a daunting challenge to come up with pleasing original cheeses, yet collectively Wisconsin cheesemakers are, are up to the task. When you are experimenting on something new and taking note the aging process of cheese, when do you typically know that you're on to something? Well, that's a good question. I, I think... Um, our finance department would like me to know really, really quick. But in reality, yeah, right? But but in reality, um, most of the cheeses at Sertori, we end up aging about a year before we really know if we have something or not. And that's kind of daunting, too, when you think about how many chances a person gets to get it right in their lifetime. If we look at our Cervecchio Parmesan, it's a cheese that we age a minimum of 20 months. I mean, yeah, you can get early reads, and we do take early reads. But when you think about developing a long-hold cheese as a cheesemaker, it's pretty humbling because how many chances are you really going to get to optimize that cheese? I love hearing you talk about all these different elements that we as consumers often don't know about and the enjoyment you take out of it. With your career and elevating up to the rank of cheesemaster, what's a key lesson that you've learned either from your family of cheesemakers or just through your years in this career that you always keep in mind? Well, certainly I've, I've learned a lot. Um, one phrase that I use quite a bit to keep me grounded, I guess, um, very early on, I was working in a, a very male-dominated plant, and, and cheesemaking historically has been rather male-dominated. Um, so far, of all the master cheesemakers from Wisconsin, there's only been two women who are named, who've been named master cheesemaker. Um, really excited that that's, that number is going to grow in the near future, but that's where we are today. So in general, early in, in my career, there's a lot of people who are super, super helpful, uh, very supportive. Um, but there were a few people too who actually kind of worked against me, who kind of made things harder. And I came across a Mark Twain quote that goes like this. Stay away from people who belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that. But the truly great ones make you believe that you too can become great. And in the beginning, hearing that quote, you know, it, it, it gave me strength. Today, when I hear that quote, it gives me a lot of humility because I have so much more to learn and so much more to accomplish as a cheesemaker. Yet it reminds me that it's important to be bringing up the next generation of cheesemakers, encouraging them, helping them find experiences to help them grow. And it's really, really, really humbling because if I do a good job of teaching people what I've learned, well, they're going to take that and they're going to learn things on their own, which means that I'm helping develop people who will be, be better than me. And, and I mean, that's how it should be. But um, I've also worked really, really hard to get to where I am, so it's very, very humbling 
but you know, it's it's also part of our Wisconsin dairy pride, right? We always want to be improving. We want to make great cheese. I mean, after all, we have America's Dairy Limited on license plate. That should mean something, right? So it's a neat dairy state of mind, I think. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for your contributions to not just our palates, but our dairy state of mind. And I've loved learning more about it. Thanks, Pam. You're welcome. My pleasure. Pam Hodgson is a master cheesemaker at Sartori Cheese in Plymouth, Wisconsin. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in September. There's a lot to do around the holidays, and we'll tell you about some events happening right here in Milwaukee this month. Coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The holiday season is upon us, and as always, there is so much to do, including many events right here in the city of Milwaukee. Every month, I'm joined by Chesney Wardell from the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service to talk about a few of the many events happening in the city. Chesney, thank you so much for joining us once again here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. So we have a a nice list of events. Many of them have to do with the Thanksgiving season, the holiday season that is coming up. Uh, But this first one is really a celebration of this season more generally, specifically fall. Yes, it is. So fall has now arrived in Carmen Middle and High School of Science and Technology um, on the Northwest Campus are hosting a Fall Fest event for friends, family, and the community to come and partake in games, arts, and crafts between 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, November 15th at 5496 North 72nd Street. Individuals can come together, whether you go to the school or not, um, you can come and partake in like a lot of fall festivities. And then also it is a school, so they're looking for enrollment as well. So there'll be administrations and faculty and staff there to help you if you're interested in enrolling your child in the school. There will also be a, a resource table for individuals to come and check out. So feel free to head over to Eventbrite. Eventbrite to RSVP your spot. Uh, So the next event that we're going to look at, I I think, could be very exciting for some, uh, especially with the price of groceries at the moment. I know a lot of people are are looking at their Thanksgiving meal a little differently. Uh, This is a turkey giveaway. Yes. So Thanksgiving is a couple weeks away and the Milwaukee Police Department uh, District 3 is ready to Give away free turkeys to anyone who's uh, wanting to come out um, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Thursday, November 16th at 2333 North 49th Street. Um, This is a first come, first served distribution. So just keep that in mind. And what's Thanksgiving without a turkey? (laughs) True indeed. 
Uh, now, another Thanksgiving event that we have, uh, but another adjacent holiday that a lot of people celebrate both on Thanksgiving and around this season. This is Friendsgiving. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, Eastbrook Young Adults, they're a group of young adults, actually, who are ages 20 to 30 years old, and they attend this church called Eastbrook Church. Um, beginning at 5 p.m. on Saturday, November 18th, they are hosting a Friendsgiving potluck at 5353 North Green Bay Avenue. The community is welcome to join them in fellowshipping, and if you plan on contributing to the potluck, be sure to click the event link and fill out the Google Sheet uh, with your name and what you're bringing. All right. So is that open to uh, really everyone? Yes, it is. And it's on Milwaukee's north side. Uh, so the next event that we're going to be looking at, uh, I think a lot of people around the holidays want to make sure that they are looking their best. Uh, and this is uh, the way to do it. Yes. So there's nothing more better than, you know, giving back to the community um, especially during the holiday season. Um, a barber named Sammy Garnum is looking forward to giving free holiday haircuts to those in need, such as homeless people. And from 10 to 1 p.m. on Sunday, November 19th at 3226 West National Avenue, um, he will be giving out free haircuts, chicken noodle soup, and other free food will be provided too. To contribute, anyone can feel free to donate items like blankets, sleeping bags, hats, gloves, and more to just help someone as the weather gets colder as well. All right. And our final event is something that I think everybody this time of year is trying to figure out, okay, where am I getting presents? What am I going to do for the holidays? Uh, this is a place to go and figure that out. Um, so Hyphen is striking again with this second annual Black Activity Black Holiday Market from 10 to 3 p.m. on Saturday, November 25th at Turner Hall, located on 1040 Vail R. Phillips Avenue. Over 40 Black-owned businesses will be present for shoppers to spend their holiday shopping and listen to tunes from Hyphen's DJ Anthony Foster and other uh, performances as well. Um, a writing station will be included with Mrs. Claus and her elves as well. So you'll have plenty to do during this event. All right. Well, Chesney, thank you as always for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing these events. Yes, thanks for having me. Chesney Wardell is a staff reporter for the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll rock out with Milwaukee's own soulful Abby Jean for the next episode of our music series Live at Lake Effect. We'll also learn about a new exhibit on the Black Cross Nurses and how their public health work in the 1920s relates to today. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.